Well, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to read from verses 13 to 20, and then from chapter 5, verses 1 to 20 as well. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we are really glad you're here this evening. Um, If you are new to Edinburgh, we're particularly glad. Um, And I hope you'll quickly feel like this is a kind of home from home, this church family, um, if if you do join us. Um, One of our convictions here as a church family is that anything God has to say 
is more interesting and more important than anything I could come up with as one of the preachers. And so it's with kind of bated breath that we come to Jesus and his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and to hear what he has to say to us this evening. So let me pray for God's help as we do just that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he spoke with an authority unmatched by anyone else in history. Thank you that he still speaks today, tonight. Please help me to be faithful to his word. And please, whatever else is on our hearts and our minds this evening, please help us, by your Holy Spirit, to have open ears and an open heart to hear his voice. Because we pray in the name of Jesus, our great priest. Amen. Well, if you want to know where we're going, there's an outline on the back of the sheet you were given. Um, And I want to begin this evening by acknowledging a feeling which some of us may feel very strongly indeed. This feeling of, I wish I could just fit in. I wish I could just fit in. I wonder if you've felt that recently, if you're a Christian. I think it can come and go, different life circumstances, different stages. Uh, But I suspect most Christians here would would recognize that feeling. We, We felt it at least some of the time. Maybe some of the folks who are new students recently moved up to Edinburgh, found it really hard to find accommodation, frantically. Uh, but maybe there were moments in Freshers' Week, uh, two weeks ago for, for Napier and Harriet Watt, last week for Edinburgh. Maybe there were moments when you thought, I am so different as a Christian. Uh, there's a different attitude to drink, to sex, to priorities in life, to church, and to a whole host of kind of hot topics of discussion. I wish I could just fit in. Those of us who are parents, we're trying to help our children to navigate the the Scottish school system, which has this wary avoidance of true biblical Christianity at the moment, but a kind of uncritical openness to a whole range of other ideologies, both religious and ethical. Christian children and their parents can find themselves wishing, I wish I could just fit in. And how many more moments in the workplace, or the sports team, the mums having coffee, or the Christian working at Holyrood, or the teenager with their mates, where it becomes really obvious we're living by a different set of values. And so sometimes as Christians we do wish that our worldview wasn't so different. And we can try and turn to kind of techniques to deal with that. There's a few ways we can try and resolve that tension that we feel with the world around us. Now, one possible way is the kind of double life or chameleon Christianity, where we act one way at church and at the weekends around Christian mates, and we're a quite different person when we're in the world. So we take Jesus seriously on Sunday and hide him in a cupboard during the week. Let me just say, if you have fallen into that trap recently, perhaps even in the last week or two, it's good you're here. Jesus is going to have words to say with us, but he always says them with love. And tonight would be a great time to make a fresh start. Perhaps though it's not chameleon Christianity that some of us battle with, the kind of double life. Another temptation is the temptation to retreat, to become a kind of holy huddle or hermit holiness. You just hang out with Christians only. I know that was my danger as a student, actually. To be honest, it still is my danger. You fill the diary with so much church and CU stuff that there's no time to actually have any meaningful contact with anyone who doesn't know Jesus or doesn't love him. 
And that's tempting. Now, as with all things in the Christian life, we're we're here and we need to hear what Jesus has to say on this subject. And he's well aware of that challenge. He's aware of that feeling and the temptations that will come. In fact, our passage tonight, we're starting at chapter 5, verse 13. That's our kind of official passage from there onwards. And he's straight into it. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Or verse 14, you are the light of the world. Or verse 16, this really gets to the point, let your light shine before others. Jesus tonight is saying Christians are supposed to be distinctive in front of other people. Actually, before we get into the details of verse 13, I think we do need a bit of a run-up. So let's back up a bit in the sermon to understand why is Jesus even talking about this issue of whether we fit in or stand out. Um, So let's back up to verse 10. Um, Verse 10 is the kind of last of these beatitudes, last of these blessing statements um, that Jesus has been saying. Uh, Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you might be thinking, hang on, verses 11 and 12, doesn't that have another one? But I'll come back to that. Let's just look at verse 10 for the moment. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying it's very possible, in fact, it's very normal to take stick precisely for living God's way. Now, if you were here last week, you might uh, remember that these blessed are those who was the kind of opening um, statement in, in Jesus' great sermon. So just turn back to the start of chapter 5. Uh, you can see there on the mountain, this is the high altitude homily, or the Sermon on the Mount, as it's more normally called. 5 verse 1, Jesus has crowds there. He sees the crowds, but he gathers his disciples. His disciples came to him. So sitting with his disciples around them, teaching them with the crowds listening in. And he starts 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it carries on. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so on. Now there are eight of these. um, And as Robin said last week, the first one, verse 3, and the last one, verse 10, match. They're like brackets around the chunk. Those two, verse 3 and verse 10, are about what's true now. Blessed are those, dot, 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 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. We belong to the kingdom right now if we belong to the king, Jesus. All the ones in the middle are talking about future blessings. For they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth, for they shall be satisfied, and so on. Does that make sense? So come back to verse 10. It's clearly the closing bracket. It's the last of the list, the last of the eight. But then, just when Jesus has said it, he carries on. Verse 11. It's like he goes into extra time. I've got something else I want to say about that. Presumably because he knows that it is a hard thing to hear, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The idea that we would get stick for living God's way, that's a hard thing to hear. And to hear Jesus say that that's not that something's gone wrong, actually that's normal for my followers. And in fact, God's approval is on you. Blessed are they, even as that happens. 
Well, that needs a bit more unpacking, a bit more help. And so we get into verses 11 and 12. And here he breaks the pattern because he's no longer saying, blessed are they who dot, 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 dot. Blessed are those who dot, 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 dot. No, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. He's looking us right in the eye, as Robin said last week. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That's what Jesus has just been saying. He's just been saying it will be painful when you don't fit in. There will be people, verse 11, who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You will get mockery, smirks, outrage, verbal attacks, legal attacks, physical attacks around the globe when Christians stick out for what God says. It's not a sign that something's gone terribly wrong. It's a sign that you belong to God's kingdom. Not that our willingness to suffer earns our place in the kingdom. No, the other way around. When you belong to Jesus' kingdom, you stick out in this world. We just are different. So you've got the Christian who's not prepared to lie at work And a few days later, they overhear a colleague saying, she just thinks she's better than us. You've got a student who holds to the Bible's teaching that God's pattern for marriage is between one man and one woman, and is kicked out of the WhatsApp group, and then is called an intolerant, backward, bigoted person. You've got a teenager who's not prepared to watch the kind of stuff their friends are watching, and is called frigid, a prude, a wuss, Those might not be the right words. I don't know what they actually say these days. But it's something like that, isn't it? So pathetic. Your precious little standards. You've got the church not willing to say that all religious roads lead to God. And it's characterized as narrow, judgmental, out of date. That's the context we're in when we come to verse 13. These famous verses that I guess lots of us know um, out of context. Jesus has just dropped the bombshell that his followers are not going to be welcomed with open arms. No, they're going to be victims of suspicion, false accusation, insult, attack. And so, of course, we find ourselves thinking, I just wish I could fit in. I just want it to stop. And that would stop it, actually, if we could just fit in. If, if I wasn't so different to my, my non-Christian family in the values I have and the values they have, the priorities of, I have of where my time and my money goes wasn't so different to my mates in my approach to relationships and sex. If it wasn't so different to my colleagues when it comes to political hot potatoes, I mean, life could be quieter, simpler, safer. I just want to fit in. So then, let's hear Jesus. At that moment, when we're feeling just like that, let's hear Jesus, verse 13, and see if you can see what his point is. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 
Do you hear the point? Jesus' response is, absolutely not. Let me give you some tips for keeping your head down in a hostile world. It's about as far as you could get from Ray Mears doing a kind of camouflage tutorial. You know, how to sneak around the woods unnoticed in the forest, just blending into the background. No, Jesus is taking the exact opposite approach. This is our first point and kind of our main thing tonight. Christians do stand out in the world, and that's a good thing. Christians do stand out in the world, and that is a good thing. I don't know if that's what you were hoping to hear tonight, but it is what Jesus has to say to us. He always speaks to do us good, and this is what he's saying. Jesus, uh, sorry, Christians do stand out in the world, and that's a good thing. There are two pictures here, aren't there? The salt picture, verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. The light picture, verse 14, you're the light of the world. Together, they are making similar points. The, the thing about salt and light is that they stand out. Salt is a distinctive taste, noticeably different. Uh, in fact, if it's not salty, well, you've just got some gravel. Likewise, light is noticeable, visible for miles in the case of a, a city on a dark night. Uh, it's supposed to be visible in the case of a gas lamp or a torch when you're camping. It stands out in the gloom. Now, this is interesting. Notice how Jesus puts it. He doesn't say, you should be the light of the world, or I'd like you to be the light of the world, or, or try to be the light of the world. Make that your aim, the salt of the earth. No, he's making a statement of fact. You are the salt of the light, salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What he's saying to his followers are, Christians just are different. We do stand out. That is someone who's come to trust Jesus, who's had God the Holy Spirit open their eyes and move into their hearts. They just are different. If you know someone who's become a Christian in the last few years, you'll have seen that. It makes a difference. In fact, that's why the opposition comes, doesn't it? Of verses 10 to 12. We tend not to like it in society when someone doesn't fit in. We especially don't like it in a society that's trying to push God to one side, keep him at arm's length. We don't like it if there's someone whose behavior reminds them there's a God and he has standards. Christians do stand out. Uh, Peter who I assume is listening to this sermon, Peter puts it like this, we are aliens and strangers, exiles in this world. That is, we belong to a different kingdom. This is not our home. Paul put it like this, we are citizens of heaven. The thing is, Jesus isn't just saying we do stand out, we are salt, we are light. He's also saying that's a good thing. Salty salt is a good thing, he's saying. Bright light is a good thing. That is, our standing out is something we should seek to continue. And this, I think, is where Jesus' words get quite challenging. Let's tackle the salt first in verse 13. Um, Salt in the ancient world was a useful substance, like it is today, uh, most commonly for for a kind of preservative. So in the days before refrigeration, if you wanted to stop meat or fish rotting, you would put uh, salt on it to preserve it. But again, if your salt wasn't salty... Uh, If it lost its saltiness, you did just have grit or gravel. As verse 13 puts it, no longer good for anything. So Jesus is saying, do you see it? Jesus is saying, look, it's good we're different. It's good we taste different, that we stand out. 
It's good that our lives are a distinctive witness. The picture of human society that the Bible gives is not a positive one. Right from Genesis 3, if you've been here in our, in our Genesis series, right from Genesis 3, when humans turned against God, quickly human society um, descends, descends into um, violence to one another, into selfishness, to competition, into sexual exploitation of people. What's striking in Genesis 4 is that technology is improving, but the human heart isn't. And we've had more and more centuries to prove the same pattern. The last century, loads more technology, loads more murder. But Jesus says, actually in that darkness, there is salt and light. Don't try and fit in with that. Be distinctive in that. And not just um, for your own sakes, but because it's useful to the watching world around us. Now, you might be thinking, can you give me some examples? Can we get practical here? Um, and I want to say at this point, Jesus is just explaining the principle and the rest of his sermon um, from chapter 5, tw- 21 onwards is going to give lots of examples. So Jesus is going to show a radical approach to anger, to lust, to adultery, to divorce, to revenge, to how we treat enemies, to how we treat the needy, to how we pray, to how we face anxiety, and so on and so on. Jesus will give a lot of examples of what this looks like in practice, this distinctive, salty kind of living. In every one of those areas, Jesus' approach is radical. It kind of stands out in a society where some of those values are rotting. It's distinctive. When you look across the history of this country, it's hard to believe that most people thought it was okay to use and abuse human beings in the slave trade, as happened in the 18th century. It was just such a massive blind spot of selfish human cruelty. And so what a blessing it was when William Wilberforce and another, a number of other Christian voices spoke up against the practice. Salty. There'll be future generations who look back on our society at the moment, our culture at the moment, at shock, in shock, at some of what goes on in the name of progressive values and freedom. It might be the increasing pressure to consider taking life away from the most vulnerable in society at the end of life, as is already happening at the beginning of life. It might be the widespread tolerance and and use of horribly damaging and exploitative pornography. It might be the fact that Scotland has the highest drug-related deaths in Europe. This is a dark picture around us. And Jesus says, in that darkness, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, when they may, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. God has not left this world in darkness. Although I think the description of who is the light of the world in this verse 14 is actually quite shocking. 
It's shocking because we know that Jesus is the light of the world. Chapter 4 said that. He stepped into Nazareth and, and the people walking in darkness saw a great light. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like Jesus, full of integrity and purity and truth. But the shocking thing here in verse 14 is Jesus is now saying, actually, you, my followers, are the light of the world. And not just the brilliant Christian philosopher or the amazing apologetic speaker or the celebrity preacher. No, just ordinary followers, all of us, followers of Jesus, the light of the world. We might be thinking, well, that seems a little bit optimistic, given there are scandals and struggles in the churches, not just in the world. And that's true, isn't it? Sadly, plenty of darkness creeps into our churches. Plenty is done falsely in the name of Jesus. That's why Jesus wants us to maintain our saltiness. So we are the light in the world, genuinely distinctive. Actually, a mind-blowing thought that not just Jesus came to be the light of the world, but he's left his church to be the light of the world. Actually, that's a kind of flow through Matthew's gospel. The beginning of the gospel begins with, with the Messiah King arriving. Jesus, the light of the world, is now here. By the end of the gospel, Jesus is sending out his followers to the nations to bless them, to make disciples, to share what Jesus teaches. Notice, too, that Jesus, I think, is consciously telling us not to do some of the tactics I said we're tempted to do at the start. So he says, don't stick a basket over yourself. Don't try and kind of tamp down the light to dim it or to cover it. It's so tempting, isn't it, to try and cover up. But verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now we might find that, verse 16, a bit strange. Because like, surely we don't do good things just so other people can see them. In fact, later in the sermon, chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus is going to say, 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. <laughs> so we've got to be wary of hypocrisy here. This is not kind of turn it on when people are watching. No, it's about never turning it off just because people are watching. That's the challenge. Jesus is saying, living distinctively for me every day, every context, regardless of who's watching, not covering the light with a basket. Again, because light is a good thing. It's not just a distinctive thing. It stands out. It's a good thing in the dark. We should be a real blessing in our workplaces, our communities, our schools. Notice too, Jesus does rule out the holy huddle, the kind of holy hermit approach. Let your light shine before others so that they may, they may see your good works. So similar, isn't it, to Peter, First Peter, that letter. Keep your conduct among the nations honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice, too, the aim here in verse 16. It's not actually to transform society. Some, some of the times these verses are taken to that end. If we could just shift society to be slightly more in line with God's values. No, look, the, the, the aim, the, the transformation we're aiming for in verse 16 is the transformation of people. 
as they encounter our witness and so in turn encounter Jesus. It's precisely as we live differently that people may ask us for a reason for the hope we have, as Peter puts it, and have an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. That's why Jesus is telling us not to hide the light. Because ultimately, that light points to him, the true light of the world. Okay, that's our first point. Christians do stand out in the world, and that's a good thing. We're like salt. We're supposed to be salty, distinct, useful. We're like a lamp, supposed to shine amongst others. It's helpful. And with this great aim that people could come to know the Father, to come to know how good God is. But at this point, I wonder if those of us who have any amount of self-awareness might be thinking, huh, hang on, (laughs) hang on, if that's God's plan, well, this isn't going to work. Because there's no way you could say that I'm the light of the world, or we're the light of the world. I mean, have you seen my life? Full of mess and struggle and compromise. I mean, I agree that Jesus shines as the light of the world, but I'm a very, very pale, poor source of illumination. I'm like a, a kind of dirty, dimly flickering five-watt bulb in comparison to his halogen. Now, there's a lot of truth in that feeling. Do you remember how the sermon started? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, those who know their spiritual bank account is empty overdrawn. Blessed are those who mourn at their sin and its consequences. And most striking of all, blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. When Jesus says we're the light of the world, it's not that we're like standing on moral mountain, full of triumph and trophies, looking down at other people, saying, look at us, we've got it all sorted. We know the answers, we tick the moral boxes. That's quite the opposite. We're the first, we should be the first to admit how much we need Jesus. We need Jesus to to provide the perfect righteousness we could never achieve. We need the cross to pay the price for us. Jesus had to live the life we should have, die the death we deserved. That's part of how we're shining as the light in the world, admitting that God's standards are up here and we all need forgiveness. I think that's absolutely at the heart of this sermon. It was there at the start, blessed are those who mourn, who thirst for righteousness. It's there in the middle, so the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer, the the prayer Jesus taught us. It's in chapter 6, just look across with your eyes. Chapter 6, and then at the heart of that prayer, verse 12, our Father in heaven, this is chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts. The family prayer admits we need forgiveness as well as daily bread. It's there at the end of the sermon as well. There's an unclean leper. The first story after the sermon, an unclean leper asks Jesus to be made clean. So the Christian witness, the Christian distinctive light, is partly us saying we need forgiveness. We haven't got it all sorted. But that said... I genuinely think Jesus wants us to live his way, to live differently, startlingly differently. This is our second point. 
Uh, this is going to be much briefer. And what we're going to do is we're going to start this point tonight and then we'll pick it up next week because um, it will connect with where we're going next. And um, Point two, Jesus' radical teaching on righteousness fulfills, not scraps, the Old Testament. Jesus' radical teaching on righteousness fulfills, not scraps, the Old Testament. Now, there's a couple of big things going on here. Um, the first big thing is how Jesus' teaching relates to the Old Testament. That's what the, in verse 17, the law and the prophets is talking about. Um, Jesus is making it clear, far from binning the Old Testament, um, he's actually the, the culmination of it, the fulfillment of it, the one to whom the whole Bible was pointing to. And we're going we're gonna to think more about that next week as we get into some of the case studies, the examples of where he takes a law and says, you have heard it said, and then unpacks that for today, I say to you. So more on that next time. Please come back for that. But for now, I just want to focus on verses 19 and 20, where it's very clear that Jesus is not here to lower God's standards, lower the bar so we can all hop across. Verse 19, Therefore, anyone, sorry, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, listen to this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That verse 20 must have been an absolute shock to Jesus' first listeners. The scribes, they're the religious experts, kind of experts on the law. The Pharisees are the religious fanatics, really keen on putting it into practice in their lives. No one took God's law more seriously than those two groups. And Jesus is saying, true righteousness, the kind of righteousness that, that belongs in God's kingdom, goes way beyond their outward conformity And actually, that's the opening bracket of this next chunk about how to live God's way. And if you look at the closing bracket, chapter 5, verse 48, the standard gets even higher. So chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's Jesus' standard, the standard of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, A level of integrity and moral perfection, purity, And of course, that's true of Jesus. That is what he modelled. But of course, we have a problem. Because I haven't lived a single day as a Christian where you could describe that of me. As perfect as God is in his moral purity. Now, because of that, that high standard, and we'll see lots of examples of it, where Jesus cares about our heart, not just our actions. Because of that, Christians have sometimes taken the, the, the Sermon on the Mount in a kind of, all it's doing is exposing how far short we fall so that we trust in Jesus and the cross. It kind of brings us to our knees. And part of that is true. I think that's about half of what it's doing, bringing us to our knees, such that if at the start of the sermon we're not poor in spirit, we're not mourning at our sin, we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, well, by the time Jesus is finished with us and shows us God's standards, we will be. That's part of what it's doing. Actually, a right reading and listening to this sermon doesn't just say, wow, 
I could never do that. Thank goodness Jesus did, so I don't have to bother. Thank Jesus that I don't have to take the fight against anger and lust and greed seriously because he did it for me. No. Those who truly thirst for righteousness, and listen carefully to this, this is important, I know I'm at the back end, but really zone in for this. Those who truly thirst for righteousness will be longing for God to make us, in reality, what we already are in his eyes because of Jesus. We'll be longing for God to make us, in reality, what we are in status before him. That is to say, righteousness in the Christian life is not just a gift at the start, as Jesus clothes me in his righteousness, It's also the goal of where we're going as Jesus changes me into real righteousness by his Holy Spirit to more and more reflect the integrity and the purity and the self-control and the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. We'll see much more of that as we go through the examples. They will both bring us to our knees, longing for Jesus to clothe us in that righteousness And they will tell us how to change, actually putting to death some of this sin and and getting Jesus' help to change. If you want proof that that's what the sermon's doing, you remember I said the Lord's Prayer is right at the heart of this sermon. The Lord's Prayer doesn't just ask for forgiveness, does it? Have another look. Chapter 6, verse 12. Excuse me. 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's the asking for forgiveness. And then, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the asking for help to change. And that's what will help keep us salty. That's what will help us shine like a light in the world. Not just the light of Everybody needs a saviour, though we freely admit that. We are not the finished article. We need rescue. But also the light of God's ways are wonderful. Jesus is changing us. The Spirit can help grow real righteousness, even as we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I hope that makes sense. Um, If it doesn't, come back and we'll start working through the case studies next week and hopefully then it will make sense. Um, Even the issue I started with about the temptation to hide away or to blend in, to apply this principle to that is to say not just sorry, Jesus, because I have done that and I am tempted to do that every day. Not just sorry, but help. Help us to change. Help us to not hide the light in situations where it wouldn't be welcome. Help us not dilute the salt of distinctive living with our own sinful selfishness. Help us, Holy Spirit, grow in real righteousness. It's a great prayer to pray. I hope we're praying it all through this Sunday evening series, but let me pray now as we close. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus.
Thank you that he is the true light of the world, the light that shone in the darkness. Thank you for the privilege of being his people, not by anything we've done, but by grace alone, as a gift alone from you. Thank you for saying that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But we do confess tonight how diluted our saltiness often is, how dim we often shine. And so we do pray you'd forgive us and change us. Help us not to seek to fit into the world at all costs, but rather to be like you, even when it hurts. Please help us to grow, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.